Hello, and welcome to World of Warbirds. I'm Brian Pierce. I know you might be busy right now. Maybe you're driving a truck or changing your oil. Maybe you're raking leaves or emptying the dishwasher. But whenever you're done what you're doing, please go to PayPal at WOWB17 and send some support. Now that I'm monetized on YouTube and I'm generating some revenue there, I have to justify still maintaining the audio podcast. So please, if you haven't done it already, help me out. And to all that have, thank you. Production and Problems in the ETO I changed the title of this section because, unlike any other airplanes we've looked at so far, the P-38 is such a story of contradictions. It was a highly successful aircraft that produced many aces and shot down more Japanese aircraft than any other. Versus, it was a widow-maker with all kinds of flying problems that took years to solve. It was a highly adaptable aircraft that was used in just about every role that one could imagine an airplane to do. Versus, it was a troublesome, uncomfortable airplane to fly, and if you didn't fly it just right, it would kill you. All of the previous statements are kind of true, and if you only heard the bad, you'd wonder why this aircraft wasn't cancelled long before. Let's take a look. One of the first problems with the P-38 was concerning it going into production at all. Lockheed was building Venturas, Harpoons, Lodestars, and Hudsons, and working on the Constellation when it started building the first 13 YP-38s, and it was struggling. The company was working on sorting out mass production problems when another problem reappeared, or I guess it never really went away. Let me describe to you this problem and how terrifying it must have been. Imagine you're tooling around in a P-38 at around 30,000 feet. It's a sweet airplane, and you're feeling like the bee's knees. It's a fast airplane, and you're a fighter pilot, so of course, you want to fly as fast as you can. You push the nose down and open the throttle. You glance down at the airspeed indicator gauge, and it's at about 320 miles per hour. And then something happens. You feel severe buffeting and the airplane's tail begins to shake. Is it turbulence? A problem with the airplane controls? You try to raise the nose to reduce the airspeed, just as you've done with every airplane that you've ever flown since you learned in a fabric-covered biplane. But this airplane won't have it. It continues to shake and seems to have a suicidal mind of its own as it shoves its own nose down, no matter how hard you pull. The controls are frozen, and soon you are going down close to vertical. Yes, you had been at 30,000 feet, but now the altimeter is unwinding, and the airplane seems determined to dive into the center of the earth. What do you do? Do you bail out? Do you keep trying to regain control? It's hard to regain control when you don't know what is actually wrong. Some did jump out. Some dove straight into the ground. One way out was to use the elevator trim to trim the nose up, and when the airplane dove into thicker air, the nose would lift, but ever so slowly. What made this problem so difficult to solve was that it was actually two problems happening at the same time with similar symptoms. 
The first was the previously mentioned tail flutter. This was solved by installing fairings, or fillets, where the wing meets the fuselage. This smoothed the airflow. They also installed counterweights on the elevator and tinkered with the angle of incidence on the horizontal stabilizer. This is the angle at which the tailplane was mounted on the aircraft. But the out-of-control diving kept happening. It would start happening at 425 miles per hour and would become deadly serious at 500 miles per hour. Now, if you don't know that you are dealing with two problems, you will probably continue trying to fix the first one, even though it isn't the thing that was killing pilots. So Lockheed and the Army continued to try to solve the flutter problem. They tried installing some spring-loaded servo tabs on the elevator trailing edge. These would kick in to try to aid the pilot when control yoke forces rose above 30 pounds force. On the 4th of November 1941, test pilot Ralph Verdon was given the job of testing out the new devices. And the test ended with the YP-38 going into a steep dive followed by a high G pullout, with the tail unit of the aircraft coming off at about 3,500 feet. Verdon was killed. They tried skinning the tail with thicker aluminum. They tried placing external mass balances above and below the elevator. Nothing worked. Even as P-38s were being delivered to combat units and were flying actual missions, the best solution that Lockheed and the Army could come up with was telling P-38 pilots, don't dive. It didn't take German pilots long to figure out that if they were tangling with P-38s and wanted to break away, all they had to do was perform a split S and head for the deck. The early P-38s were unable to pursue. And these weren't the only problems. As P-38s began arriving in Europe, serious engine issues began making themselves known. The first was more of a technique training issue. Most fighter pilots were being trained on single-engine aircraft, and the transition to the P-38 might be adequate, or more likely, rushed and lacking. If these pilots suffered an engine failure on takeoff, there was a good chance that they would do the wrong thing. Back in single-engine fighters, there's not a whole lot to do if you lose the engine on takeoff. You're shutting things down to hopefully prevent fire and stopping on the runway, or straight ahead into whatever is in front of the runway. With the P-38, if the pilot continued with full power on the good engine, the thrust from the good side and the drag from the bad side would yaw the aircraft over and flip it on its back. The technique that was finally developed was to pull back power on the good engine, feather the dead engine, trim the aircraft, and then gradually advance power on the good engine. That's a lot to do and counterintuitive when you're low to the ground and just want to get up. Better training gradually improved this. Another massive problem boiled down to temperature. Smarter and more technical people than I might quibble about the details that I'm about to give, but let's just simplify it for the ease of understanding. Engines have a temperature range at which they operate properly, and features are built into the engines to keep the temperatures around there. The Allison engines did not tolerate heat very well. 
If things got too hot, the gasoline being sprayed into the engine might detonate or explode early, and this was bad. Detonation was detrimental to the pistons, rods, and crankshafts, and in very short order, a detonating engine might tear itself apart. So the engine systems were designed with many features to aggressively keep the temperature down. Oil coolers, intercoolers, radiators, etc. These worked well in balance at low to medium levels in the United States of America. Take them up to the freezing temperatures of 30,000 feet up over Europe, and these cooling systems were just too aggressive. The intercoolers and the turbos cooled down the fuel so much that the lead separated from the fuel, lowering the octane and resulting in fouled plugs, thrown rods, and swallowed valves. Radiators could lower the engine temps below normal operating minimums. Oil coolers could congeal the oil to a sludge. All of these could cause engine failures, and the best that could be said was that at least the P-38 usually had another one to get you home with. Other temperature problems were with the pilot, which is another thing that only operates well between certain temperatures. With single-engine fighters, it is relatively easy to duct some heat back to the pilot in cold temperatures, and even some just comes back through the firewall into the cabin on its own. With the engines out on the wings, it is very difficult to get heat back into the cockpit. On a personal note, when I was flying a twin-engine Piper Navajo in a Canadian winter, the cabin heat actually came from a source independent of the engines known as a janitrol heater, which burns gasoline and keeps the cabin warm. Luckily, the thing is pretty reliable, because if you're flying at minus 30 degrees centigrade, that's minus 22 Fahrenheit for you Yanks, and the janitrol fails, it's an emergency situation. You are going to freeze soon. The P-38 had no janitrol or anything similar, and the heaters just weren't moving the heat from the engines to the cockpit. The pilots were cold, and at best they were uncomfortable. At worst, they were getting frostbite on their hands and feet. Also, the windscreen would ice up, and so the pilots couldn't see. And if you can't see, you can't fight. And you didn't even have the option of a power dive away, because that other problem wasn't solved yet either. So now that we've laid out all the problems, let's see how they were dealt with in operational history. Operational history. In March 1940, the... Anglo-French Purchasing Committee ordered $100 million worth of P-38s, which would work out to a total of 670 aircraft. But they had a few special requests due to the urgent demand that they had for airplanes that had to be delivered like yesterday. Firstly, they didn't want to be dealing with left-hand and right-handed engines. What would happen if they didn't have the correct number of the type they needed? They wanted to be able to shove a new engine in and not worry about whether it was a lefty or a righty. So they ordered theirs with all righties. Secondly, although turbo superchargers were a fantastic invention, the Brits were not familiar with their use. And also, as the supply of turbo supercharger systems was low, the Brits did not want to be waiting for airplanes due to supply chain issues. 
They just wanted the airplanes, right now, hold the turbos. They were also the ones to name the plane Lightning, which stuck rather than Lockheed's original name of Atalanta, which was a Greek goddess that I've never heard of. Aren't we all glad that they kept the British name? P-38 Atalanta, it just doesn't cut it. Although they provided a great name for the P-38, the British got cold feet, get it? When it came to buying the plane. Again, to simplify things, they were worried about the performance without the turbos, worried about the single-engine characteristics with only right-handed engines, and mostly worried about the, you know, elephant-in-the-room, tail-flutter-diving-into-the-ground issue. They modified their order, and they finally cancelled it. This caused some legal contract issues because Lockheed had these British P-38s coming off the line, and who's going to buy them? Turns out the USAIF would buy them all once December 7, 1941 happened. They were modified as trainers, F-5A photo reconnaissance planes, or sent as fighters to the Pacific, where they were known as P-38Gs. Along with all the other problems plaguing the P-38, there was another one lurking that was purely due to policy. The USAAF did not want long-range fighters. They didn't think that they were needed, and even admitting such would be admitting that the whole bomber-will-always-get-through thing was wrong. In fact, airplane manufacturers were discouraged from adding drop tank systems to their fighters, as it was considered by the brass to be an unnecessary waste. But some people thought that long-range fighters could come in pretty handy one day, especially out over the Pacific, where there is a lot of water and not a lot of airfields. And with two thirsty engines, more fuel would be better than less. And one guy came up with a workaround for the P-38. Can you guess who? Yeah, it was Ben Kelsey, again. He seized on the observation that the U.S. really needed a high-speed, long-range, photo-reconnaissance plane. He saw the long-range part of that statement and realized that it was a backdoor to introducing drop-tank systems to the P-38. Kelsey put his career on the line in 1941 when he convinced Lockheed to incorporate such subsystems in the photo-reconnaissance model, and then, you know, just leave it in for all the other models. Nothing was put in writing, and the whole thing was arranged verbally. So the P-38E had the drop tank plumbing, and when the F and later models came along, they all had it too. The very first Lightning to see active service was one of the previously mentioned photo-reconnaissance versions known as an F4 version, which was a P-38E in which all the guns were replaced by four cameras. These were being operated by the Royal Australian Air Force in April 1942. In May 1942, 25 P-38 start operations in the Aleutian Islands in Alaska where the Lightning's long range allowed for long, but boring, combat patrols. The biggest danger was the weather, but on 9th of August 1942, 
two P-38Es of the 343rd Fighter Group, 11th Air Force, stumbled upon two Japanese Mavis flying boats and splashed them. These were the first of many Japanese aircraft to be destroyed by lightnings. Operation Bolero was the U.S. mission to transport to the U.K. everything that was needed for the European campaign. That included aircraft. At the time, the way to transport fighters was to either box them up or wrap them up and ship them across the Atlantic, which was slow and where all the hard work to build them could be wasted if a U-boat put a torpedo into the side of the ship. If only there was a way to avoid airplanes getting torpedoed. In March 1942, someone came up with the thought that U.S. fighters might avoid German U-boats by, you know, flying over them. President Roosevelt made the thing a priority, and General Hap Arnold, maybe because of his relationship with Kelsey and the P-38, was probably aware of the hush-hush drop tank work being done on the P-38. All of a sudden, drop tanks were all the rage, with 300 to 310 U.S. gallon versions being demanded on top of the 150 and 165 U.S. gallon types. On 23rd of June, 1942, two Boeing B-17 Flying Fortresses and seven P-38s took off from Presque Isle Army Airfield in Maine. After stopping for fuel in Goose Bay, Newfoundland, Bluey West 1 in Greenland, and Kefalak in Iceland, they arrived in RAF Heathfield in Scotland. 200 of the P-38s were flown across the Atlantic in July to August 1942, including one flown by our hero, Ben Kelsey himself, who landed in Scotland on the 25th of July. On the 14th of August 1942, 2nd Lieutenant Elza Shahan of the 27th Fighter Squadron operating out of Iceland spotted and shot down a Focke-Wulf FW-200 Condor. This was the first Luftwaffe aircraft destroyed by the USAAF. During the North African campaign, the Lightning's great range was very useful, and Lightning struck on the 22nd of November when Lieutenant Mark Shipman downed an unidentified Italian twin-engine aircraft. Later on, he brought down a Messerschmitt BF-109 and one of those huge ME-323 gigant transports. If you boil down the whole story of the P-38 combat experience in the Mediterranean, the best that you can come up with is that the results were mixed. The BF-109s were a tiny bit faster than the P-38, but the twin-engine fighter had a smaller turning radius. The P-38 could outclimb the 109, but the 109 could always dive to get away and the Lightning couldn't follow. Because of all the guns on the nose, though, the Luftwaffe would never attack the P-38 head-on, which was considered suicide. By the time 1943 rolled around, the USAAF had definitely changed its mind about long-range fighter escort, and P-38s were called upon to fly at high altitudes with the bombers. And that brought about all the problems with the cold that I mentioned before. Not only that, but the P-38 was a very demanding plane to fly and fight. 
As an example, I'm going to read an excerpt from a report by Colonel Harold J. Rao, commander of the 20th Fighter Group, written to his commanding general. As a typical case to demonstrate my point, let us assume that we have a pilot fresh out of flying school with about a total of 25 flying hours in a P-38, starting out on a combat mission. He is on a deep ramrod, penetration, and target supports to maximum endurance. He is cruising along with his power set at maximum economy. He is pilling 31 inches of mercury and 2100 RPM. He is auto lean and running on external tanks. His gun heater is off to relieve the load on his generator, which frequently gives out under a sustained heavy load. His sight is off to save burning out the bulb. His combat switch may or not be on. Flying along in this condition, he suddenly gets bounced. What to do? flashes through his mind. He must turn. He must increase power and get rid of those external tanks and get on his mains. So he reaches down and he turns two stiff, difficult gas switches, valves, to main. Turns on his drop tank switches, presses the release button. Puts the mixture to auto-rich, two separate and clumsy operations. And increases his RPM, increases his manifold pressure, turns on his gun heater switch, which he must feel for and cannot possibly see, turns on his combat switch, and he's ready to fight. At this point, he has probably been shot down, or has done one of the several things wrong. Most common error is to push the throttles wide open before increasing RPM. This causes detonation and subsequent engine failure. Or he forgets to switch back to auto-rich, gets excessive cylinder head temperature with subsequent engine failure. In my limited experience with the P-30A group, we have lost at least four pilots when bounced, took no immediate evasive action. The logical assumption is that they were so busy in the cockpit trying to get organized that they were shot down before they could get going. End of excerpt. Things got so bad in 1944 that Jimmy Doolittle, then the head of the U.S. 8th Air Force, went to the Royal Aircraft Establishment at Farnborough, asking for an honest evaluation of the various American fighters. Test pilot Captain Eric Brown, who we've heard from several times in this podcast, wrote, We had found out that the BF-109 and FW-190 could fight up to a Mach of 0.75, three quarters the speed of sound. We checked the lightning, and it couldn't fly in combat faster than 0.68, so it was useless. We told Doolittle that it was all good for photo reconnaissance, and had to be withdrawn from escort duties. And the funny thing is that the Americans had great difficulty understanding this, because the lightning had the two top aces in the Far East. Close quotes. One place where the P-38's problems were less evident were in low level, for example, in the role of fighter-bomber during D-Day and after during the Allied advance into Germany. P-38s dive-bombed radar installations, attacked enemy armor and troop concentrations, and provided general air cover. Things got personal in July 1944 when the 370th Group Commander Howard F. Nichols and a squadron of P-38 Lightnings hit Field Marshal Gunther von Kluge's headquarters with Nichols himself 
skip bombing a 500 pound bomb right through the front door. Eventually, almost all P-38 units in Europe were converted over to P-51 Mustangs. Well, that's about enough for this episode. In our next one, we will talk about the Pacific, the P-38's playground, plus talk about all the different variants that the P-38 went on to become. So until next time.